1: Have you ever dreamed of Ashvin trying to sell you something? Or Donner awkwardly trying to give you a pep talk? Have you ever wanted Mary to tell you something heartwarming and or vaguely threatening? Or Laura to hype you up? Or whatever you want Murphy to tell you, we won't judge. Well good news cause you can get that as a Patreon reward on the Hainai Patreon. Every month even. Sign up to the Nanai tier on Patreon and you can get personalized messages from the Hainai cast and support our show as we try to become a sustainable podcast where we can pay our small team and our voice actors fairly. We're aiming to at $200 a month on our Patreon before the end of 2023, so sign up now for this and other awesome perks.
4: Listening to "Hainai" by Matsi Dapul, episode thirty-four point two, Kapit Bahay. Another story, and I think I'm starting to get a sense of the author. He was a journalist. The journalist. That interviewed Elaine about the fall of Hyde. We don't have his name, but he seems to know more about the elders than any of us. Whatever information we can glean from him is going to be important, I'm sure, so I'm just recording the stories he wrote here. He talks about a man named Bolden. An elder, he seemed to know, though judging by his writing, he was playing the man like a fiddle. <laughs> I really like this guy. (sighs) What worries me is how he describes Bolden. He talks about how these are Bolden stories from a whole library of death. I don't know what that means. Given what we know about Foci, if he's being literal about this library, then what if this Bolden person's Foci are books, and what if he has a whole library of Foci? What, What does that mean for everyone else? It seems like this journalist was handling Bolden, at least on some level. So let's hope it's not another headache we have to deal with on our own. I'll make a note to ask Vanessa or CJ about this Bolden guy once I get through these recordings. Anyway, sorry for the preamble, I just had to get my thoughts in order. So this one's a bit unique, because he seems to have written two stories in tandem. One of them comes from Bolden's library, and another, Fear Death, this one... Only involving a single person, but just from skimming, I think. I think it might be a teenager. But the other story, it's written in first person. It seems to be a transcript of an interview the journalist did. He put these two stories together for a reason. Let's see. Bolden wrote about this particular tale with no small amount of glee, and it's not hard to see why. There's very little to feel sympathetic about with this particular person, and if this were only a story, I think I'd have enjoyed it. Reminds me of one of those little splatter horror shows they might watch at the grindhouse on Yong Strip, the kind that F. is always so very shocked by, even if I'm convinced he secretly loves them. A Quiet Suburb A teenager alone, making all the wrong decisions. A horrible person who might have deserved some kind of punishment, but nonetheless, a teenager. A real person, and so very young. Undeserving of such a horrible death. I suppose the elder who did this thought it was some kind of morality tale. As though these murderers are the grand arbiters of morality. But I digress. Chris Parker was, if you go by his obituary, one of the most universally beloved students to come out of JG Secondary. But if you go by people who actually knew him, the common consensus was that he made them feel like shit, whether he was actively putting them down or not. He was a bully though he was smart enough to have plausible deniability about it. He never lay a finger on the people he hurt, but it seemed that everyone around him suddenly became accident-prone, and he had a way of making them feel very generous when it came to their lunch money. One might ask what his family was like, but his parents were apparently both very present and very well-respected, and fairly well-off. His grades were decent, His athleticism made him a district-wide baseball star. And all in all, to literally anyone other than his classmates, he was amazing. This was the kind of boy who'd want for nothing, and lived a life many young boys are told to aspire to. He just wasn't a very good person. Still, he didn't deserve it.
3: So I just speak into- Okay. My name is Brenna. I was Chris Parker's schoolmate. We had some classes together before I- Okay. Okay. You're asking about his death when he overdosed at the neighbor's house. I mean, that's what happened or that's what they said, but, but they didn't want me to say it at the school function. Um, the one where we had to pay respects and all? Nobody was really happy about it. Chris was a bully. He made our lives a living hell. I don't think he deserved to die or whatever, but he deserved something. (sighs) To grow up, I guess. That was what I wanted to do. Grow up. It's all I wanted to do. I wanted to go to college. Maybe become a journalist. Like, well... You... You really think so? Is this all gonna be on the record? Okay. I I trust you. Cause I think... I think it was my fault that he died. I didn't do anything, but if I didn't get him that Job, you wouldn't have been in that house, and maybe... (sighs) Jeepers! Is this your cat? What's her name? Pocket? What a cute name! Hi, Pocket! (sighs) Thank you. Sorry, I'm okay now. Sorry I'm making it difficult. Let me start from the beginning. See, my parents, they're not rich or anything. Not like the Parkers. But they are the kind of rich where they didn't just throw money around, you know? Apparently, when Chris wanted something, they didn't just give him a wad of cash and send him on his way. They wanted him to learn good values. They wanted him to earn it. My parents, well, they love me. They teach me things. They'd probably give me spare cash if they had any. But they don't. It all goes to Dad's treatment. He can't work, so... Anyway. Um, how much of this is going to be published? Really? Can I get that in writing? (laughs) So, I really wanted to help Mom and Dad out since things were hard and we couldn't really do stuff. Like, all the money was for food and medicine and paying for bills and everything, so we had just enough, but my little brother started getting bullied at school for wearing hand-me-downs, and I wasn't doing much better. I knew it wasn't really something my parents could take care of, so I figured maybe I should get a job. Get something extra for me and my brother. Save up, help my parents not have to worry so much. So I started looking for odd jobs. Babysitting, mowing the lawn, stuff like that. It was at one of these jobs that I met Mr. Reelman. I was mowing the lawn outside this nice house closer to the hill where I come from. It was an area where the houses start getting bigger and the neighbors started getting sparse. So it was a bigger job to get the whole thing done, but the pay was pretty solid, so I couldn't complain. The lady who hired me was in the living room with her husband. Chatting up this well-dressed friend of theirs, younger than they looked, but it seemed like they were pretty invested in what we had to say, from what I could see from the window. I didn't think much of it then, not until he was leaving the house. He stopped in front of me when I was taking a breather, and asked me if I ever did any house-sitting before. I'd done a few babysitting gigs by then, and I told him so. House-sitting sounded like a breeze in comparison. I think he thought that was funny. Gave me a big smile, and I noticed that one of his teeth was gold. Near to the side, so you wouldn't see it unless he was smiling real wide. It doesn't make sense, but I think he was... excited? For me? For his pad? I don't know. Something. I just thought he was a weird rich guy doing weird rich guy things. He gave me the address and a date and time, when I arrived the first night, he greeted me at the door, told me how stuff worked, and then he handed me this really fancy piece of stationery that had a long list of detailed instructions, told me I needed to follow these instructions to the letter, or else. He didn't say what would happen, but the way he said it, I didn't want to test him. So I made sure I read everything over twice, and did everything the instructions said. Keep the lights on. All lights must be kept on at night to ward off potential robbery. Hallway lights and other interiors optional. Keep the curtains closed. The light will show through most of the curtains, but privacy is key. The only curtain I could open was the one in the living room to check on neighbors. Keep the doors locked. Check that all doors are locked and bolted. Then check again around 10pm. No surprise guests. I was assigned caretaker, and if Mr. Reelman got the impression I had any guests over, I'd be in trouble. Somehow. Pretty standard stuff. I wasn't allowed to cook anything, but I was allowed to use a stovetop or oven to reheat the food provided. They had this fancy new microwave thing I could use. Heats he food just like that. It was like a kitchen from a catalog, and the food he left was fancy. Not like one of those TV dinners, but sometimes I wish I could have brought some so I could microwave them and see how fast they defrosted. Sorry, not the point. Um, it got a bit weirder after that. The next instruction said that I should keep the hallway mirrors covered with the sheets he had over them, but that every time I passed by one, I should clap my hands three times. I didn't think he'd know if I did it or not, but I figured it didn't hurt to do, so I did it. It was a bit silly, but I wanted to do the job right. Then it said to check his bedroom to make sure nobody was there. I don't know what he'd expect me to find, but the list said, if nobody was there, I should make sure the window was locked. And if someone was there, I should... Tell them to leave. Don't forget to check under the bed, it said. The first time I did it, I was terrified that I'd actually find something. But there wasn't anything to find. I figured he was just an eccentric trying to get in my head. It then said that I should go to the door that led down to the basement and call down. Is anybody home? and wait for a response. If I didn't get anything for 30 seconds, I could close the door. If I did, I should say, this isn't your house anymore, and close the door and lock it. After that, it said to make sure to look out the living room window at 10.30 p.m. exactly, but that I wasn't, under any circumstances, allowed to leave the house until Mr. Reelman got back at 11 p.m. No matter what I saw, it said. I did everything it said, down to the letter. I worried that he might have a spy or something, or some kind of device only rich people could have, some kind of home security thing. I knew it wasn't logical, but he was rich-rich, and I just kept thinking about how much any money he'd give me could help my family in a big way. So I did it. All of it. And nobody was in his bedroom. Nobody called back in the basement. I ate my delicious dinner in front of the television because Mr. Realman told me I could. And I made sure all the doors were locked at 10 p.m. I looked out the window at 10.30, but the neighbor's house wasn't lit up. So nobody was home. And I watched TV until the front door opened. And Mr. Reelman walked in. He looked at me, sitting in the living room in front of his television, with these wide eyes. Like he forgot he left me to care for his house. Then he gave me this big, big smile that let the almost hidden gold tooth flash in his mouth. And he said, Good job. You did so well. Followed every instruction to the letter, I see. He couldn't have known that. He couldn't have, right? Unless he had someone watching me, but the curtains were closed, and... Anyway, he seemed really impressed that I got through the night doing everything he asked. And he handed me a hundred bucks in two fifties, the most money I'd ever seen in one place before. He had this whole wad of it in his wallet, just carried it around like it was nothing even asked if it was enough, and the look on my face probably told him everything he needed to know. I told him he could call me any time to do any other odd jobs, and he patted my head like I was a kid and told me he just might. I was good at following instructions, he said. A rare thing, he said. So, I went home late that night, and I could hardly sleep the 250s burning holes in my pockets. The next day, I gave my mom one of them. She was worried I got into something bad, but I told her all about Mr. Reelman and his weird instructions and his big house, and she agreed it was probably just some eccentric rich man with too much money to throw around. I took my brother with me for the Saturday, since Mom was still working weekends, too, and I got us both new clothes from the thrift store. And when I came home... My mom told me Mr. Reelman called and asked if I could come back the next Friday to house it. It was amazing, honestly. It was a cushy gig. Mr. Reelman seemed to trust me a lot more after that first night. And almost every Friday, he'd ask me to watch the house for him while he had some important meetings. He never looked happy about it, but it was none of my business. He was nice to me. This is going to sound weird, but I don't think he liked me very much. Because sometimes when I ask my math teacher some questions, he has this look like he's supposed to be nice, but he thinks I'm stupid. And Mr. Reelman always had this look like he was a little annoyed whenever he thought I wasn't paying attention. I mean, maybe I'm overthinking things, because if he really didn't like me, he wouldn't keep asking me to come back, right? The instructions change sometimes. I never asked, and I think that's part of the reason he kept trusting me. I never asked why I had to check his closet if anything unusual was in there, or knock on the attic door three times, or light a candle in the downstairs bathroom and let it burn. Nothing happened. For months. And then... Chris Parker happened. I wasn't spending too much of the money I got from Mr. Reelman, trying to put it away for a rainy day, and my mom told me she was keeping the half I gave her for college or something. But that did stop me from at least wearing new clothes. Well, clothes from the thrift store, but new for me. I got to try different styles, experiment a lot, and my brother told me he was doing a lot better with his nifty new threads. And the people at school started to notice. I was pretty much a nobody, I'm poor, or I was, so it's not like anyone thought about me that much. But when I started coming into school with brand new outfits, some people wanted to know why. I think it was Chris's girlfriend Sammy who tipped him off, because next thing I knew Chris was cornering me by the lockers trying to strike up a conversation, asking where I got the new threads. Told them I was doing some work on the side, odd jobs. From what I heard his buddies talking about, he got cut off by the folks. Wasn't even getting an allowance, bringing food to school instead of being given the cash to spend. Something about being irresponsible, getting into the wrong stuff. I got rattled when he asked if he could try the same job. Because when he asks, he's never really asking, you know? I didn't want to do it, but I wasn't looking forward to getting beaten to a pulp or becoming a pariah at school. When being invisible and mostly ignored suited me just fine. So I took his number and called Mr. Realman to recommend him. Mr. Realman sounded odd over the phone. Like he was trying to sound firm, but he was saying it through a big smile. I gave him Chris Parker's details and hung up felt so bad after that that I need to lie down for, like, a month. I couldn't believe I gave the best gig ever to Chris Parker. I really was feeling hopeless that week. But that Thursday, Mr. Reelman gave me a call, asking if I was available that Friday, like I wasn't always available to do whatever he was willing to pay me for. So I said yes. I wasn't sure if Chris bailed on him or something, Because Chris wasn't giving me any trouble at school, so I figured I did exactly what he asked, and he had no more reason to talk to me. But either way, I was so happy that I didn't lose my spot, so I agreed, expecting that night to be exactly like every other. I was surprised when I was closing all the curtains, because when I looked outside, I saw that the other house was lit up, that somebody was moving around inside. I kept it in mind for when I checked the neighbors later in the evening. Lights on, curtains closed, doors locked, all alone, good food. Now, when I started doing the rest, something was... off. When I passed by the covered mirror and clapped my hands, I thought... I thought I heard someone clap back. It's like when you're on the side of a mountain, hiking, and you clap, and you hear the echo, but since it's so far away, it just sounds like someone else is clapping. I thought I imagined it, so I didn't give it much thought. I checked the bedroom and looked under the bed as usual. Nothing. When I went to check the window, the, uh... The closet door... Opened. Like... It just opened, slowly, like, like there was a draft, but, but the windows were closed, so there weren't any drafts. I felt a chill go up my spine, but I reminded myself that there was no reason to feel like this. All the doors were locked, and I was all alone. There was no way to get into the house if you weren't already in it. Still, That was the first night I said, You have to leave to an empty, silent room. Then I went to the basement. It was October, so it was getting to be just a little chillier at night. I called down, Is anybody home? and waited. And waited. And just as I was about to close the door, I heard something. Tapping. On the wooden steps. All the way to the bottom. I didn't know what, but it was different, so I said, This isn't your house anymore! And I locked that door as fast as I could. It took me a little while to calm down, and thankfully I was able to distract myself working the microwave to heat my food. I was thinking maybe I could buy my family a microwave, when I saved up enough money. I got to sit down in front of the television to enjoy myself. We were coming up to Halloween, and they were showing these little creature features. I got so caught up in the show that I almost forgot to do my checks on the doors. All locked, as usual. But when it came time to check the neighbors, I looked out the window, and I saw all the curtains wide open at the other house. I couldn't see much until I looked up at the bedroom window and saw Chris Parker knocking on the window, looking terrified, screaming for help. He couldn't get the window open. I was about to run out the door, but I remembered what Mr. Reelman said about leaving the house and anyway maybe Chris was playing a prank he was the kind of guy who'd do it and laugh to his friends about it later so I figured I was getting got until I saw the hallway window on the first floor someone was walking by someone big so I rushed to the phone and tried to call 911 but it didn't go through I don't know why I tried to call Mr. Realman, maybe he'd know what to do, maybe he'd call nine one one. but... Brenna? Mr. Realman, please help, I think- This is a recorded message. Technology is wonderful, isn't it? Anyway, Brenna, I've sent the special answering machine message for if I were receiving a call from my own home, because nobody else would be calling from there. I'm sure you've seen something of concern, but I promise you, there's nothing to be
4: concerned about. Whatever you've seen, It is simply standard practice for us real
3: estate types. Now, haven't I treated you well? If you agree, I suggest waiting patiently until I return. If you've somehow missed or messed up a step in your instructions, you may repeat them in order.
4: It will ensure you're back on track for the work you've been doing. Wishing you well.
3: Signing off now. It wasn't even remotely helpful, but... It helped me calm down a little bit. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I needed to get to another phone, call 911 from there, but Mr. Realman didn't even really have neighbors. There were four houses across from each other, and the two across the street were completely dark. It was just me and Chris and whatever was on the first floor. I tried another idea that wasn't against the rules. I checked the yellow papers to see if the other house had a listed phone number, and it did, so... I gave the other house a call. I hoped I'd get Chris, but if I got the other guy, it might give Chris time to escape. When the phone got picked up, nobody replied when I said hello. I didn't know if it was Chris or the other person, so I had to rack my brain for it to say. The police are coming, I said. It was a lie, but it could work either way. You have to get out of there now. And all I got was breathing. The call eventually went busy. Someone must have hit the hook or hung up or something, because when I tried to call again, it stayed busy. I couldn't leave the house. I knew I couldn't leave the house. I was scared. I... Didn't know what to do, but maybe I should have gone to help. I almost did, though. I had my hand on the kitchen doorknob. I was ready to head over to see what was wrong, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I went back to the window. The curtains were still open, but most of the lights were out now. And I couldn't see anything. But then, the living room light turned on and I could see Chris sitting on the couch watching the same horror double feature I was. And I felt really stupid, like I got pranked, of course. I figured maybe he invited someone over too, against the rules, unless his rules are different from mine. I tried to get it out of my mind the rest of the night. Until Mr. Realman came back. He looked... giddy. Like something good happened at his little meeting. Gave me two hundred instead of one hundred this time. I was so happy. For about a minute. that as I was leaving the house, I saw an ambulance and a police car. I had no idea what was happening, but they were wheeling someone out on a stretcher from the neighbor's house. And when I tried to get a look at who it was, well, it was covered all the way up to its head. I only realized it was Chris Parker because Mr. Reelman put a hand on my shoulder and told me that my friend didn't work out that he wasted his chance with drugs and booze and whatever else he was doing at the neighbor's, and it tragically took his life. When I asked if anyone else had been in that house, he said no. But I remember when he said it. He was smiling so wide, his gold tooth shined through.
5: Damn it.
4: I hope Laura got all that.
5: How do we get signal underground?
2: Magic can interfere with cell phone signals. I don't think the location's got much to do with it. I don't even know if we are underground. I don't think we're in a place at all. We've been going down for a while. Is that a tape recorder?
5: Detective Donner told me it's the only thing that works to capture the supernatural. This and old photographs anyway.
4: I suppose it's one way
2: to make sure they have answers. Ah.
5: Hope these stairs up aren't as long as the stairs down. (laughs) Afraid of a little cardio? I don't spend my time climbing ten stories worth of stairs for fun, boss.
2: Oh, that's how I know you've never dated a gay man. Oh, well, look at that. Sunlight.
5: Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
2: (sighs) I don't think there's anything good here, Evelyn. Stay close.
5: This is the biggest library I've ever seen. And these books. Bodies of water.
2: Evelyn, I
5: don't think that's a good
2: idea. Evelyn?
5: (coughs) Evelyn! (coughs) 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 Evelyn, are
2: you okay?
5: I was... <coughs> underwater. I couldn't break the surface. <coughs> Something was... Uh, Holding on to my leg, I...
2: Okay. You're okay.
5: <coughs> <coughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have opened that book. I... Oh,
2: don't, don't, I shouldn't
4: don't. Don't apologize.
5: apologize. I... I thought... I thought maybe the Book of Elders might have been here somewhere, but... How are you going to find it in a library this enormous? Evelyn,
2: I know this book is what we came here for, but I think our priority is getting out before this place swallows us completely.
5: Okay, but how? Uh, boss. us? Hello? Ashvin? Where am I? Okay. Okay, Evelyn. Be fine. They'll have CJ's charm. You're not drowning or on fire. You're just... In a library. A really big library of books that could kill you if you open them. Hello? Who's there? Show yourself. For what? Where'd you... Who are you?
4: I should ask you the same question. Who are you? And why have you come to my grave? What
5: grave? Wait are you Elaine O'Donnell?
4: So you know my name. And you? I uh go on. I love your lion, so don't even try it.
5: E- Evelyn My name is Evelyn.
4: Evelyn sweet girl. Why have you come here? Are you looking for it too? You and your magical friend?
5: The Book of Elders? Yeah, yes. We're we're looking for it. Why? We're trying to do what your friend did. The friend you mentioned in your journals. Jay. We're trying to stop them. You read my... Please, we need your help. We've been trying to stop the foci from killing people, but it's not enough. The benefactor's after us, and we...
4: (laughs) Call it a character flaw, but after what dear Clifford Bolden did. I'm more than wary of people I do not know, seeking out the book I was asked to protect. So tell me. Why should I trust you, Evelyn, or your friend, the arsonist?
5: My my friend burning down half the evil elder library isn't proof enough. And uh who's who's Clifford Bolton? Did did he Elaine? Did he kill you? <laughs>
4: Oh, he tried, but my friend, Jay, he outwitted the bastard before he could lay a finger on me. So no, he didn't kill me, Dove. but after what he did, I don't want him to hurt anyone else ever again. So, with a little bit of magic, and his body shot and bound in a state of dreaded death, we trapped him here. In this place that is not a place. Couldn't kill him otherwise.
5: You trapped him? Wait, so does that mean this... miasma is yours?
4: (laughs) Miasma. That's a good word for it. Yes. This is my prison for the man who tried to kill me and who killed countless others. For this horrible little books. Do you know what they're bound with? Do you know how much pleasure you took in that?
5: Elaine. My boss. My friend, Ashvin. He might be in danger. He, he might be with Clifford Bolden right now. I need to help him. I i really need to just...
4: Evelyn. darling. Cleford Bolden isn't going anywhere. He's not gonna escape this place with Jay's book. He's gonna stay trapped forever while I still exist. And he will never get out.
5: But what about us? Oh,
4: You're listening to Hainai, by Motsi Dapul.
0: Hey everyone, it's Motsi.
4: A temporary four-day ceasefire has been established in Gaza. During this, eight Palestinians were killed by Israeli fire in the West Bank. The current death toll is now roughly 14,500 Palestinians, with 1.2 million displaced from their homes. Hostages have been exchanged between Israel and Hamas, and if the question you're asking is since when did Israel have hostages, the answer is that Israel has been holding over 1200 or 1200 Palestinians in administrative detention meaning they were imprisoned without charges or even a trial long before October 7. The number was over 700 Palestinians in August 2022, and over 1,200 recorded in August of 2023. Of the 39 Palestinians released by Israel in the hostage exchange, 17 are minors. The main alleged crime for these detentions is stone-throwing, which can carry a 20-year sentence in prison for Palestinian children, said a report published in July by children's rights organization Save the Children. Prior to October 7, there were 5,200 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons, with 3,000 more added after October 7, including multiple journalists. So why am I telling you this? Well, I'm sharing this information sourced from news outlets such as Al Jazeera, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, and various human rights organizations to remind everyone that this conflict did not begin on October 7. We've seen conflicts and large scale death before, but we've never seen it so vehemently denied by mainstream Western media. So we feel that, even with our small audience, it's important to present context and information that's been largely absent from a lot of the reporting of this horrific mass killing. As usual, We ask that, if you are able, you take part in campaigning for a more permanent ceasefire, especially if you live in a country that has the global political power to do so. Most especially the USA and Britain. We've attached the usual information. Call and email your reps. Fundraising is wonderful, but in order to get all the donations in, there must be a longer, more permanent ceasefire, and an end to the imposed blockades on food and resources by Israel on Palestine. It's been working, but we can't stop now. In all this, please also fight against anti-Semitism. Israel does not represent Jewish people all over the world who are put in harm's way due to their horrific actions. Anti-Zionist Jews have been fighting for weeks against this genocide, so please support and protect them if you can. Please take care of each other. Love you all.
1: CRIMES OF THE MARCUSES Martial law plunged the country into poverty, putting Filipinos in debt that they are still paying for to this day. In Malacañang Palace, meanwhile, the Marcos family indulged in their extremely lavish lifestyles, using wealth stolen from the country's coffers. Just searching Imelda Marcos, the former first lady and mother of the current president, will show the first results being about her 3,000 pairs of shoes. Imelda Marcos, now 93, claimed that her ostentatious living was simply mothering to a nation in need. Her 5 million US dollar shopping spree to New York and Rome, an infamous shoe collection, supposedly provided a kind of light, a star, to millions of impoverished Filipinos. Audits show that the Marcuses had about 50 private properties, both in the Philippines and abroad, including a private seaside resort. The budget of the Office of the President, hard-earned money from Filipino civilians, was used to construct, renovate, and maintain these properties. Estimates of total costs reach about 3.2 million US dollars in 1984, and $10.5 million in 1985. Since these are only the figures covered by the Commission on Audit, actual expenditures may easily be much higher. In that decade, the Marcus family's expenses for the upkeep of their residences would have been enough to feed 8,000 starving families of six for an entire year. This doesn't even yet include the luxury cars, designer clothes, excessive vacations, and other indulgences the Marcuses not only made no effort to hide their riches, they were shameless in flaunting it. In a 2009 BBC travel documentary entitled Manila to Mindanao, Imelda was seen taking out a bank document from Brussels and showing it to host Simon Reeves for no reason other than to flaunt the $987 billion US dollar deposit made under Ferdinand Sr.'s name. In a 2001 interview with BBC News, When questioned about their greed and corruption, Imelda simply stated, they found no skeletons, only beautiful shoes. In 1989, Imelda and Ferdinand Marcus Sr. achieved a Guinness World Record for the greatest robbery of a government, allegedly having siphoned between 5 to 10 billion U.S. dollars of the country's money into their own hands. To this day, the true amount of the Marcus's ill-gotten wealth is unknown. Hey everyone, this is Reg Helly, co-creator and co-producer of Hainai. Hainai is a podcast produced by Motsi Dapple, Yoi Halago, Alisa Jimenez, and me, and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. This episode was co produced by Jesse Goodsell and written and directed by Monty Dapple, who also plays the roles of Mary and Brenna. The role of Evelyn was played by Natalie. The role of Ashvin was played by Adil R. The role of Laura was played by Abigail Rhodes. And the role of Murphy was played by Edward Boxler. If you'd like to chat with other listeners when this episode goes live, we do a live premiere every other Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or Toronto Time on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash To help support the production of Hainai, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash We have an early access program where we release episodes three days earlier on Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or Toronto Time. You can also get bonus video, audio, art, and so much more. Speaking of Patreon, we'd love to give a shout out to the following patrons for all their amazing support. Jesse Goodsell, Astra Kim, Danny, Evie Smith, Malaya Light, Megan, Pablo Neurotic, and Victoria Goodwin. Thank you guys so much for all the support you give us. If you can't subscribe monthly, you can have the option to buy us a milk tea on coffee at coffee.com slash that's ko-fi.com slash HainaiPod. Our ad-free Hinei album, which has our official music and full episodes from Act 1 and 2, is also available in both Patreon and the Coffee Store. Check out our website com for more news and updates, and don't forget to follow us on our blog com as well as our socials Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at HainaiPod. Haina is available on Acast along with Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoy our Act 3 episodes, and as always, thank you, we love you, and hanggang sa